The Fantasy Animation Podcast is a completely independent production. It is made by experts in the field. Chris is a lecturer in liberal arts and visual cultures education at King's College London and author of The Computer Animated Film, available in all good bookshops. And I, Alex that is, am a senior lecturer in film and media studies at the University of Portsmouth and author of Encountering the Impossible, the fantastic in Hollywood fantasy cinema, available in even better bookshops. We do this podcast to provide audiences with an informative and hopefully entertaining guide through the ways in which you can not only enjoy fantasy and animation, but study it, examine it, explore it, and of course, make it and have a career in it. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi listeners and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. So Alex, today we are doing, I was going to say early silent cinema, but are we? Are we doing early cinema? <laughs> um, as we take on They Shall Not Grow Old, the Peter Jackson directed and produced uh, documentary, question mark, so we might want to talk about that, um, from 2018, looking at the sounds and images of the First World War. Um, this film, I think, is, is sort of garnered a, a bit of, um, I would say, interest slash controversy given that it adds sound effects voiceover and crucially digital techniques to footage taken from the imperial war museum's archives um, maybe suggesting how the footage has perhaps passed through the digital grading suite um, and what and how that kind of impacts the way we talk about it. so i've got things to say about um yeah i think colorization digital aesthetics computer graphics the the, the same old Chris Holiday, bingo. What about you? <laughs> well, it just occurs to me, it's one of these episodes where I suspect listeners are at this point are going, but this is neither a fantasy or an animation. Oh, how little they it. know. But I hope over the next hour for... Um to, to, to kind of uh, persuade them that perhaps it is worth talking about sure. it in those terms. Um, yeah. Yes, well, we will we will do some some very small persuading. Mm-hmm. Our guest, I think our special guest, will do a lot of the heavy lifting in this episode. Um, so we're joined by Dr. Lawrence Knapper, who is Senior Lecturer in Film Studies at King's College London. He is undoubtedly King's, I think, silent cinema and British national cinema expert, whose books include British cinema and Middlebrow culture in the interwar years, the Great War in popular British cinema of the 1920s, and then uh, most recently, silent cinema before the pictures small. He has also appeared on BBC4 television documentaries and he's also involved in the Kino Quickies series of podcasts as well. So thank you ever so much for joining us. We finally got you. I said when we when I met you, we finally got you for the podcast. So thanks for coming on, Lawrence. Thank you for having me. Um, so Lawrence, this is a film that you've published on multiple times uh, in blogs and in academic articles in relation to the film's kind of digital enhancements, the colorization processes, and the array, I think you said that kind of array of added frames that maybe pull out the difference between an enhancement and restoration. Okay. And in fact, you you argued that Jackson is um, I was. This is the quote that struck me from one of your pieces. Is not interested in what audiences saw in 1916, but instead, quote, adding the paraphernalia of modernity onto it. So, safe to say, you are ambivalent about the film. Uh, yes. So, basically, first off, where does it kind of sit? Where does the film sit within your research interest? And, and basically, wh- why were you drawn to it? What compelled you to kind of write about it across these sort of blogs and, and articles? 
Um, I suppose, well, uh, I mean, where it sits in my research interest is obviously one of the books you mentioned that I wrote was about um, the ways in which the First World War w was uh, imagined uh, and, and, and filmed in, mm. uh, in, in British cinema of the 1920s, so like immediately in the decade straight after the war. I'm sort of interested in that idea of, um, you know, how do, how do audiences and filmmakers who are kind of still processing what happened yeah. between 1914 and 1918 um, approach the idea of the First World War? I, I think we're used to a kind of sense of the First World War as sort of this terrible, tragic event that should never have happened. That's a very 1960s sort of take right, on the right. First World War can only really exist after the Second World War, where the First World War gets, in British culture, to be the bad war, and the Second World War gets to be the good war. Right, so right. after the Second World War has happened in the 1960s, in the 50th anniversary, there's, you know, there comes this lion's led by Donkey's idea that you know, it was a pointless war. Yeah, it's not really possible to say it's a pointless war in the 1920s because obviously lots of people lost yeah. their fathers, sons, brothers. Yep. So you can't turn around and say, "Oh well, obviously, you know, death of my loved one was completely pointless." That's not something that people are doing in that decade. And I was interested in seeing how that played out in the cinematic accounts. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, one of the things that became evident. Um, is that the vast, or the, like the, a big proportion of the films made about the First World War in the 1920s are what you might call battle reconstruction films. Right. So they're films where they um, they took individual battles. There's one about Ypres, there's one about the Somme, there's one about Mons. Um, and they effectively, they got veterans to reconstruct their experiences right. on the battlefield. Um, and they intercut those sort of filmed reconstructions with all kinds of archive footage from the period itself. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, part of my teaching is about thinking about the films of the First World War that were made during the First World War and how audiences during the First World War understood the war through cinema. Yeah. But, of course, the other things that are being shown in those kinds of situations are um, the footage that is shot at the front by uh, um, the official war cinematographers. And, I mean, that's quite a long history. Uh, the, the war office initially didn't want anybody to film the front. Uh, the film industry and the newsreel industry uh, spent a lot of time trying to persuade the war office to allow filming to be on the front. And eventually they allowed two cameramen uh, to go to the front and film uh, uh, what was going on there? A guy called Jeffrey Malins and another guy called John McDowell, um, and they were allowed, basically, in the trenches. Um, and they filmed footage. Initially, they sent back uh, material that was then uh, shown in cinemas as sort of short newsreel items. Mm -hmm. um, and then, around 1916, uh, when the Battle of the Somme uh, offensive uh, began. Uh, the, 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 the editors who were at home sort of thought, mm, actually, this, this would make more sense to edit as, as, a, as a feature film. Yeah. Uh, and they put all these, uh, uh, this footage together and created this feature film, which is called The Battle of the Somme, which comes out in 1916 yep. and is basically, it's the, it's the blockbuster of the century. I mean, it, the, the figures suggest that a higher proportion of people in the UK saw that film than any other film wow. since. Yeah. 
Uh, so, and, so just to interject two questions for that one is one is is that film how is that film received at the time and two is this the same footage that is being used in the movie we're talking about today? so yes yeah. so right. that footage is received at the time as sort of revelation there's lots of sort of um accounts of uh audience members saying you know i was never able to imagine what my you know what my relation was going through but this has enabled me to understand you know the, the, the what their experience is um uh, it, it was massively successful it was also it was i mean it was sort of key in terms of uh, british in terms of film development generally because um, you know before the war cinema was a little bit disreputable you know like if you were a nice respectable person you didn't necessarily go to the cinema because it was you know for vulgar people mm-hmm. but the the that battle of the somme footage is a point where it's like you know, it's appealing to across the population. Mm, yeah. Um, and yes, that is that footage, the footage that's shot by McDowell and Malins, uh, that then gets turned into the Battle of the Somme film, but also into it's so successful they make sort of two or three, uh, you know, sequels. I suppose you'd call yeah. them. Oh, these um, franchises, they go. Oh, <laughs> absolutely, that goes back to the very <laughs> beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, that is the footage that the Imperial War Museum holds and which Peter Jackson used to create uh, They Shall Not Grow Old. And, I mean, it's not, it's, you know, I mean, talk about how, you know, this was kind of respectable stuff. The Imperial War Museum film archive exists because of these films. So at the end of the war, the government were like, well, we can't just trash these films. We don't want to just kind of give them back to the commercial producers. Like, these are sacred objects, effectively, you know, memorial objects of the of the war. And so we... You know, when we are creating the Imperial War Museum, which was created as as a sort of you know as a as a memorial to the First World War, they included a film archive, and mm. the, the film archive the Imperial War Museum can claim, I think, or has a claim to be the first film archive in the world because really? it is it's the first sort of um, dedicated organisation to preserving film footage. So yeah, they're important films. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, uh, with all that in mind, this is a film that reuses a lot of the footage you just cited. It kind of, from my understanding of the production, Jackson and the team were sort of just given, were they given access to this archive of various films and told to do what they like with it? Were there certain? My um, understanding um, is that the Imperial War Museum sort of thought, oh, the centennial of the First World War is coming up better, you know, what are we going to do for this? And they had a various ideas about how to use their footage. And uh, one of them was to approach a filmmaker to make a, a kind of a film out of this material. It's not unusual, actually, for archives to do that. You know, um, uh, there are various examples from C to C is a film that the BFI, BFI quite frequently con- commissions these kinds of Right. But they usually go for a relatively unknown or, mm-hmm. you know, a filmmaker who's starting out or a filmmaker who's sort of like at the at the mid-level. They don't go for a sort of mega star like Peter Jackson. But Jackson, obviously famous, is very interested in the first of all. He's obsessed with it. Yeah, um, he was going to make a version of the Dam Busters very famously, wasn't yeah. he? That never actually ended up happening, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. he was keen to do it. So they were like, OK. Like, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, sure. <laughs> we'll let you do that. Yeah. Um, I can imagine the meeting. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> So he basically had the run of the archive um, and they showed him a lot of material and he made his decisions. And I think there was a little bit of a kind of moment where he was like, oh, look, wouldn't it be great if I could colorize this material? Because one of the key things about, I mean, one of the kind of, I guess, 
one of the uh, key ethical um, uh, things about archive work is that you, you like you don't alter the stuff. Do you know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> you don't colorize it. You yeah. don't add material. You, you know, as an archivist, you're, you're concerned to present the material in the best way possible, by which you mean uh, in, a, in a form that is closest to how it was first presented. So, like, you take film that is old and scratched from use, which is kind of decayed because yep. of age, and you try to take it back to the moment where it first hit the cinemas so that it looks perfect. But it looks perfect in a way that the filmmakers originally intended. Yeah. Um, and one of the, uh, one of the kind of tenets of FIAF, FIAF is the, is the international kind of film archiving you know, organisation, and they've got various rules about what is possible to do and what is possible not to do, and, and you know, colourisation is a no-no. Sure. You know, because you're adding stuff that, you don't, that wasn't intended by the filmmaker, which wasn't there. So the sense in which, I mean... On the one hand, you can say, well, of course, all that footage still exists in the Imperial War Museum yeah. in its original state. You know, the, 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 yeah. the material is there. It's not that he's destroyed the material, but he has used the material in a way that I think would, would make most film archivists feel a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, OK. I mean, no, I was going to say, I mean, Jackson, just going back before, before we perhaps get into the, the mechanics of the film and how it, it, it formally expresses that shift from reportage, like even the kind of black and white voiceover and then with the, the sort of um, what's the word? Oh, aspect ratio. And then it kind of changes uh, and then we go, now we're into the colour bits. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I've got a Wizard of Oz <laughs> comparison to make, I'm afraid. Uh, um, okay. Okay. I, I, do it, I do it every podcast, so this one was easy. Uh, yes. But yes, yes, yes. Interesting. Um, no, yes. I was just going to say, kind of, kind of Jackson himself, I, I understand what you mean about, I can imagine the meeting, I can imagine the very short meeting, which was, he wants to do it, great, brilliant, let's grab a coffee. However... <laughs> The fact that he has that relate, I mean, the fact that he has his own links to computer graphics and the popularization, well, his relationship with Weta in New Zealand, but also his relationship to fantasy storytelling, his use of digital effects within fantasy storytelling, he just seems like an interesting fit. Like, of, of course, for this podcast, he's a gift, but it's an interesting choice for him to be the guy who does this kind of thing with that kind of footage. So it seems too good an opportunity to sort of pass up to to sort of reflect just and just say, well, Peter Jackson's like the perfect. That's one of the ways that the film could be considered at the interim between fancy and animation. However, before we started, you you said and Alex said, say that in five minutes, which is I think any should... any film that imagines the you know the trenches of the First World War is effectively a fantasy and or an animation. Interesting. And, and why is that? Well, if you think about if you think about the trenches, they are basically an imaginary landscape to all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, access to them, even at the time, was, was incredibly restricted. Um, uh, and, you know, they only existed for, what, four years? So they, 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 for, for everybody on the globe today, they are a landscape of the imagination. They don't exist anymore. Um, uh, even at the time, they existed only in reality for relatively few people, considering how many people there are on the globe. I, yep. mean, I know it was a it was a world war, but you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> the vast majority of the British population was not there at the trenches, but was imagining there was had an investment in imagining what it was like to be there. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, there's relative. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of photographs, there's a lot of written material about what it was like, but there's a sense in which it's always an act of the imagination. To or an act of fantasy, really, to to try and place yourself in in, yeah. in that space. What do the films of the time then? Just before we get to, what do the, what, what role? Because I remember 
there's like a Chaplin film about the Somme, isn't there, or something like yeah. that? And there's shoulder so, arms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shoulder, yeah. Um, so there are what, what role is film playing at the time in in perpetuating this fantasy or or I don't know fictional. I, I don't I don't know what the word is, but what's what's clear, clearly film's role in creating an imaginary of the of the. Yeah, the it's like well, I mean, you know, like how do you tell a story of a of a place that's so sort of you know chaotic and awful? How do you place sense on the chaos of that place, I guess. Um, the Chaplin film is very interesting because it, what it does is it collects together lots of ideas about the trenches which were circulating at the time. So if you remember that whole thing about um, about bad luck, about, you know, he's he's number 13 and then he's like, just like looking at himself. He, he's, he, he does that. He, pre- he taps his breast pocket and then he takes out the mirror from the breast pocket, which has broken. This is all like immediately before he goes over the top. So there's that sense of... Um, he taps into a range of ideas that are current in the front at the time. There's a whole load of stuff. Uh, Paul Fussell talks a lot about the the emphasis that the soldiers placed on luck, yep. on carrying lucky, you know, mm-hmm. they had lucky things, the idea of, you know, bullet with your name on it. That I, Because when you're, when you're living in a chaotic world where you've kind of got no control over whether you survive or whether you don't, it's, like, it's not a space of agency. It's not a space where you are you know, a brilliant soldier and therefore you survive. No, it's completely chance. Yep. You know, if that machine gun bullet happens to hit you, it happens to hit you. Um, so you've got kind of no control over your survival. So the soldiers, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 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 by all accounts, were very invested in the idea of luck and the idea of chance and, you know, this kind of talisman that are going to see them through. Yeah. I want This idea of kind of no control over your survival is a nice little way of, well... It's a very crass way, but it's a very nice way of thinking about Peter Jackson. Like the, the, this film is very controlled and feels very staged. And, of course, there's the question of the archivist and the archive and the material. The, somehow the material now has no control over what Jackson's going to do to it. Yeah. But the film is very staged. I, I felt the film was very stage-managed and, and was clearly aiming to press certain buttons and do certain things. But, and maybe that, lack of, maybe that control is something that is ill-fitting with this kind of chaos, yeah. this lack of agency that... I mean, the film has definitely got an angle, hasn't it? If you think about the beginning of the film yep. where you see the footage through a... It's it's masked. You've got the sound of the projector. You've got the kind of, you know, the... the he puts yeah. a, he puts I, a projector sound over it. I watched it again last it. night on DVD and I'd watched it once in the cinema and I think I watched it in quite a ropey old cinema so I yeah, sort yeah. of didn't realise that annoying projector sound is there in the film. He's put than, it on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's put that on there. <laughs> um, and, you know, he, he, so he's like... He's making an argument about saying, oh, here's this crappy old, you know, viewing conditions and this crappy old footage and then obviously there's a point in the film where it suddenly transforms into his widescreen you know uh, smoothed out colour yeah. footage and it's like ta-da so here's a before and after and I think I mean that's one of the things I write about I wrote about a lot at the time is this sense in all of the trailers and all of the publicity of here's a crappy before and a spectacular after mm. um, and in fact actually that's sort of not true because the before footage is kind of amazing and not crappy in the way that he makes out. So if I understand some of your arguments emerging here, part of the value of keeping these films in an archive is not just that they document, even if they document, that's a charged term, but they capture images from this from, from this place that's such a kind of locus of the national imaginary uh, yeah. uh, and we can access it. That, uh, that seems to be what Jackson's view is. And this is a window onto the world of the, of the Somme. Yes. Um, and we can, we can make that window sharper, clearer, 
uh, more transparent if I colorize it and add sounds and the that would be that, his that argument, would be his yes. argument. So yes. it's not the window at all. But, 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 but what you're basically. saying is that actually what it captures is the process of mediation that is going on in the, in English culture, British culture in 1960, 1940, 1950, 1960, 19. It is also the way we responded to the war is captured. Yes, in those I mean stages. I think so. I mean I think the the uh, Jackson's interest uh, and he said this in interviews is, you know, if you're a soldier on the on the front, you saw the world in colour. You saw the world in close-up, you saw the world in detail. So, like, he's trying to reproduce sure. what those soldiers on yep. the front saw. I suppose my argument would be, if you're a soldier on the front and you saw Peter Jackson's film, you'd be like, well, what is this? This is bizarre. It's not unlike any other film I've seen before because your concept, your concept of cinema would be the original film. <laughs> like, yes. All films in black and white, all films in colour. The idea of a film in colour and with sound is like completely alien to audiences of, the, of 1917. But also, the vast majority of people who weren't at the front, this is how they understood the This is what they saw. That original footage is what they saw and how they conceived of the front. Um, so for them also, the film is a document of how they understood yes. what the front was. Fine, and that's lost... That's lost in, in Jackson's of, of, process. I mean, in the yes. sense in which, I mean, you know, uh, those additions that he's put on it are, a lot, I mean, they, you, they are akin to animation. You know, they, they manipulate the image in such a way yes, that, yes, it, yes. That, it, that it ceases to be a record of what was in front of the camera and becomes something that has been, that Jackson has created for his own imaginative purposes, mm. I would suggest. Yeah. And I suppose one of the things that one of the things that I would say is if you need to manipulate the image that much, you kind of don't need the image to be authentic. You could just create a battlefield reconstruction sure. as they did in the 1920s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess <laughs> following, that. <laughs> following his logic to the extreme right, you know, um, Soldiers in the war held guns. So should we do that while we like? You know, how immersive do we want this to be? And aren't we just now? We like, yes, I can see the sort of. I mean, this we've lost. Us, we've lost the kind of tether to what was. A this thing. brings us back to if you think about, you know, when I said you know any film that imagines the first order is an act of fantasy. Yes. Like I can I can think of two three examples of that. So one example is. Um, Kenneth Branagh's Magic Flute. Sure. Uh, yeah, I've seen it, yep. His adaptation of Magic Flute, which is like basically sets it in the trenches. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a, there's a kind of astonishing opening sequence where um, over the overture, where like the camera basically kind of moves from the from the lines at the back to the front. And it is this complete fantasy about yeah. what the... I mean, obviously the trenches look insane. They're all clean and beautiful and everybody's got freshly laundered uniforms and so forth. But it's a sort of like, it, there's something really bonkers and surreal about the idea of, I mean, setting the magic flute at the front anyway, but it's a, it's an act of fantasy. Sure. Another example, I guess, is um, 1917. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously it has the same, has the same conceit about the continuous shot. I went to see 1917 in one of those, uh, what's it called? You know, where, where they where they have seats that tip up and like oh, squirt yeah, you with liquid. And, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. and you know, special smells. Yeah. It's like, mm, yeah, like I'm glad they don't actually have special smells here because some of this stuff is quite. Blah. But it's like, what is going? Like, why would anybody want to go to a cinema and have the experience of fighting in the trenches? Mm. Actually. Yes. Like, well, the, the so, answer is they aren't, are they? Right? They're not having. They're not having that experience they're because they're not afraid in. of death. They're not terrified, and what is being offered to them is highly 
you know, stylized and created for pleasure. And, you know, I think what most people, what most members of the trenches say is that it wasn't pleasurable. Yes. Well, so, so this that's one of my sort of key arguments about fantasy is that there are like, every story has an implicit level of fantasy. What people call fantasies just make it explicit, right? So Branagh's The Magic Flute, there's almost a degree of honesty or because it reveals the the phantasmic nature of its storytelling. It, it says you don't need to to to, don't need to buy this, this. Real. Yes. yes. No, um, whilst something like They Shall Not Grow Old is asking for that kind of authenticity. It is reaching for that kind of authenticity, I think. And, and there's a sense in which it's like, well, why? Sure. <laughs> is it trying to, is the film trying to keep to, and I don't, because I've heard you speak about kind of this country's connection to the first, to poppies, to all this sort of like uh, increasingly tenuous link to this period. I mean, I only just realised when I was walking up that, like, you're doing this because it's coming up to November, aren't you? I was like, oh, yep. shit. Yeah, yeah, this will be coming out, uh, this is coming out, um, yeah, no, this is coming out. I mean, November the 13th. This, <laughs> this will be coming out, um, yes, for, for Remembrance Weekend, and I think it's important that it is, because I think these are things we, you yeah, know, this is part but, of what yeah, we should yeah, be yeah, doing. Yeah, it's part but of also, it, yeah. it, it also coincides with that, and also, but it also coincides with... Um, the nation's sweetheart, Captain Tom, and there's something about this. This those who I don't know. There, there may be there may be some people that are still that are still alive. I doubt it, but there, there are. Yeah, are, okay. Okay, so there aren't. There but also no, the kind of, dumb. Yeah, okay. Um, and obviously, indirectly, families that are connect. But but it's also trying to. So maybe that's the black and white footage. That's what that purpose is doing at the start. The colorized footage is for people like me. To be like, oh, that's that's how I think I thought and imagined. So it's sort of trying to address two audiences: the sort of the the, the a discourse of authenticity and a discourse of kind of fantasy, and saying that both of those things are equally equally um, realistic. Because his argument his argument was that it's not it's but it's based in kind of testimony and, and memory rather than accuracy, but that memory is important to to sort of think about it. memory is equally as real or as an authentic as the actual footage and so he's trying to capture two different responses to a period of time people that felt it and people that continue to imagine it interestingly enough that that distinction between two different kinds of audiences and audiences whose an audience whose memory is being triggered by the film yes, and an yes. audience who is being educated about something that happened before they were born that discussion is happening in the 1920s wow. when they're making those battle reconstruction films. They're saying, <clears throat> on the one hand, these films are for soldiers who were at the front and like soldiers who were at the front yeah. go to those films, you know, with their as kind of outings for their military, you know, kind of veterans organizations. Um, and and there's descriptions of the ways in which, you know, the, 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 the cinema theaters were full of singing they, you know they were singing the songs that they remembered as they were watching the films mm -hmm. and the films do sort of cue you in to do that uh, in, on, on, on several levels but also that they are for an audience who doesn't remember that, 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 that it's important to teach a younger audience who has come up even you know even by 1927 there's a generation of people who don't remember the war weren't present at the war um, and 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 a lot of the kind of criticism is saying you know these films are important because we mm -hmm. need to teach the new generation about what happened and what that means. Mm. I mean, I think, obviously, the part of the point of Jackson's film is that it was the centenary. It was yeah. a centenary object. So the sense in which already because it's a centenary object, it's like this is passing into history. Like this is like there isn't going to be a two. I mean, maybe there'll be a 200th anniversary of the First World War, but I mean, it won't be the 
big deal that the, the centenary was. Yeah, yeah. So there's a sense in which it is just moving into somebody else's history. And yeah. I mean, I, I sort of feel a bit like that about remembrance, really. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, you know, we've spent a lot of, we've spent many, many years saying, oh, let's remember the First World War. Let's make sure that this never happens again. Mm, you know, like tugging our beards and being very profound about how terrible the war is. and how. But like, we're still at friggin' war. Do you know what I mean? We still, we still do wars all over the place. Maybe we should stop making that argument because <laughs> mm. it clearly hasn't worked. Yeah. Well, it's, it seems to be so. It seems to be there's lots of things in that, but it seems to be that one of the problems is this idea of um, of education, right? Um, that what we're what this is is uh, both the old footage and the new footage. It sounds like in different ways claim to have some sort of educative purpose. They're showing us what life is like in the trenches, and what you're saying, and, I'm, and I buy the argument entirely, is that you can't what. To, to, it's almost it's the only way to really do that is to um, is to is to accept it's sort of a mass cultural fantasy going on hmm. um probably even for those there right i mean i wouldn't want to speak for them but like the the chaotic nature of this thing the fact that you can't get a glimpse of this yes i mean there's a, you know, there's a sense um, in which like how do i make sense of this thing i mean like this is true of any historical event yeah. obviously how do i make sense of this thing that's happened there are a million different ways of doing that there are a million different narratives sure. to tell about that and you choose the one that is most you know it suits you most sure so it's that claim of education that um, needs at least qualifying or, or having, um, yeah, I don't know. One uh, of the things I do with the students um, when I teach the Battle of Somme, I teach the original film every year on the silent cinema course because obviously it's kind of crucial in terms of the development of British silent cinema, uh, is I sort of invite the students to talk about how they first found out about the First World War and what their experience of it was like in terms of education, in terms of at school. And it's really fascinating because like, a lot of the British students only find out about the First World War through the war poets. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. In English yeah, literature. Yeah. They don't do it in history. They do it yeah, in English literature. Yeah, I did it at school, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's very much about both the tone of the war poets, but also imagining yourself in the trenches. You know, they don't do like, here, is the, here are the geopolitical reasons why the, why the war happened or came about. Here's the, here are the negotiations. No, no, it's all about you're a soldier in the trenches. What, how, how are you feeling? Yeah. Um, but also international students, obviously in other nations, the war has completely different meanings. Yeah. It has totally different meanings. Um, and sometimes the complete opposite. I mean, obviously German students learn about the First World War in completely different ways. Um, and always there is this relationship between the First and the Second World War and, and that sort of balance of like what is a good war and what is a bad war and how do you make sense of it. So I think that is sort of, I mean, I suppose that just illustrates your point about the ways in which, you know, you lay, on, you lay stuff on this, on this history. Which he does technologically, uh, but we'll talk about that. Well, well let's, talk just, let, let's drill home the fantasy point. And then you also said it's like an animation, so I want to come back to why war is like an animation. But just to, just to finish off the point on fantasy, I, I mean, to talk about the Wizard of Oz comparison, I mean, it's a format point for this show, but never has it been more justified than today, because it's, it's got to be part of the thinking here, or at least... It, it, it that kind of do the first 25 it's even about the same amount of duration uh, in terms of the Kansas sequence into the Oz uh, sequence and the film's about the same length yeah. right so this whole like and it just I, I'm just interested in what you think he's doing with that because obviously that that whole sequence is part of a kind of wider kind of 
when Technicolor is still a, an element of spectacle. It's used to. It's not a used to evoke reality. It's used to evoke fantasy. Um, then we get the kind of the, the, the matter of life and death subversion of it, right? Where where um, that kind of reverses round. But 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 that that's what that the the, the, the Munchkin Land sequence is, right? Yes. Color means magic. It Color means mean, magic. And, yeah, and, and black and white. And means black real and white means really boring old Kansas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think he's sort of. I mean, on the one hand, he, he's doing two things, isn't it? On one hand, he's saying this black and white sequence is the sort of crappy like, stuff that exists without my amazing, wonderful, magical yeah. touch. And here's the colour sequence that I have magicked forth and is spectacular and fabulous. But on the other hand, what he's claiming is the opposite. Mm-hmm. What he's claiming is the black and white sequence is a, a kind of a failure of reality, a failure of realism. And he, with his magic touch, has like made these films real and kind of understandable and legible. Mm. So is that a fan... So Chris mentioned in the introduction that part of your discussion about this idea of modernity, is that actually what the really... This isn't necessarily... is. It doesn't seem to be doing much in terms of offering any new territory in terms of the kind of cultural fantasies of war, at least within Britain and the kind of colonial powers. I mean, I think it seems to go over relatively well-drawn territory to me, at least. I I mean, I think, I mean, one of the things that I guess we never really discuss about Jackson's film is the two other elements that it uses. So it uses those uh, interviews, uh, the, the oral histories, uh, from the Imperial War Museum, most of them are, I think, from the Imperial War Museum collection. Obviously, in the in the nineteen from the nineteen sixties onwards, um, uh, historians of the Imperial War Museum oral history department went and interviewed veterans. I mean, my my brother in law did that and does that. I mean, he doesn't do First World War people anymore, but he did a lot of those interviews. Um, and one of the things that's, I suppose, refreshing, well, I mean, I don't want to be grudging about it, that is refreshing about Jackson's account is that it includes interviews where people are saying, at the time of my life, yeah. it was like a holiday, yeah. you know, I got away from home, these were spectacular, you know, this was kind of a thrilling and exciting event. So it, so it does move yeah. away from that narrative about how it was yeah. meaningless and awful. The coda of the film is particularly effective in that. There's a lot of discussion of kind of, I didn't really, I felt came home and I sort of had this really kind of you know collaborative spirit and i felt deflated okay. right um versus the kind of national myth of like they're all delighted to be away from hell right you know yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the other thing that happens mm. is uh, there's a point because those some of those interviews are pretty uh, graphic in the description of hand-to-hand fighting and the, the kind of door gore that they're talking about but of course the original footage can't it's like they don't. It's like there's no hand-to-hand fighting. Sure. There are images of the dead, and yeah. some of the. I mean, it, it is quite shocking in what it does do. So it has images of the dead, and bearing in mind that this is being shown in cinemas while that battle is still going on. You know, the battle lasts for six or eight months, and and the and the film kind of comes out within the first eight weeks of of, of the of the first day of the song. So that battle is still happening, and you see images of men lying dead in the trenches, not just Germans, but also British men. Uh, and you also have or, or already seen recognisable faces. So there's a whole thing about recognition going on in the in the, in the uh, Battle of the Somme film where men, you know, file, they, they march past the camera and they wave at the camera, they smile at the camera. They are like, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's one of the key things, obviously, that Jackson says about them. And it is absolutely true that that footage, like what strikes you is that there are individual people there who are like doing their thing and they are characters and like they, they, they really sort of have a sort of sense of reality. What was I saying? I can't remember where this point was going. We're, t- we're talking about um, the, 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 
yeah, I don't, it's good, but uh, I don't know where it was going either. The, fo- the footage of and the way oh, it's manipulated. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So yes. it's graphic about the hand-to-hand fighting, but of course the, the, the footage can't go there with it. And what Jackson uses instead is illustrations. Yes. He uses still illustrations yes, from does. the War Illustrated. Yeah. Um, and from various other magazines, contemporary magazines of the period. So and and those. Like, they're a completely different order of thing. Obviously, there's a sense in which if you've got an illustration, you can show something much more graphically. You can show somebody being stabbed. But it is it is generically coded. It feels like an illustration from a, from a novel um, because, like, they are... They have their sabers and they're like they are doing all of the kinds of old fashioned language that supposedly the First World War got got rid of. You know, so they so those illustrations offer a sense of the war as an adventure, as an excitement, yeah. which is exactly the kind of thing that I mean, it's a kind of it's a it's a it's a kind of general discussion within literary studies that. Before the war, it was possible to talk about war in these kinds of glamorous, chivalric sure. terms, and that that was very much a language that was circulating at the time of the war. And after the war, that wasn't possible. That that you didn't. That, that no writer who had been through the war discussed it in those kinds of heroic terms. Yeah. They were all talked about it in terms of kind of, um, you know, abjection. Sure. Okay. Is, uh, in terms of that. Um, uh, the, the sort of stylistic, yeah, the stylistic shift. Obviously, you have the obvious, as you said, from black and white to, to colour. And then I noted down the sort of the bits in the film where they're talking. So when they're talking, for example, about the, the kind of sanitary arrangements and they're talking about um, <clears throat> kind of basically lining up and going to toilet um, and and which precedes the sequence about if you don't have gas masks, you urinate in a, you know. Anyway, um, that's the moment where there was a shift between kind of still images. There's the footage from the, from presumably the, the, the um, archival footage then you have still images and then you have what look like kind of cartoons like the drawings mm-hmm. yeah. like drawings from the newspaper where they're yeah, in the... colour as well aren't they quite often those posters as well yeah. certainly in the opening section it's very strange because talking about that register shift is that actually the only bits of colour you get in the first 25 minutes are the kind of propaganda yeah. posters that the film is contrasting with the reality of what the soldiers are talking about. Mm. So you get these flashes of colour every time they're talking about the fantasy of war yeah. and then the thing goes into like there is some weird in a way, if if I weren't completely na- if I if I was completely naive, I should say, and I was reading this purely as a fantasy scholar, there is a way in which the fantasy of color is coded within the movie. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that is what he's getting at. I think it's no, much more about this idea of, as you say, magic technology bringing back to life the. Almost that's the fantasy, right? Yeah. We've brought back to life the past. Yeah, well, it reminds me of when we did Walks with the Machine, we did animated documentary, and the fact that the whole film was in animation, and at the very, very end, you have this live-action footage. And the simplistic reading, I think, that we mentioned was, okay, so is the filmmaker making a comment that the animation is equally as real as the live-action and vice versa? A similar charge you could level at this, where you say, well, is, it, is the film's move between this kind of mixed-media effect, if it had cartoons, let's say, or if it had... Had cartoons, but it also had your, your still images, your newspaper, your advertisements, your illustrations alongside the archival footage. Would that mean that Jackson's saying all of these are equally as imagined, or is he making a point about registers of realism and registers of fantasy? Because it would be too easy to say, well, yeah, all of it, all of it is fake. Yeah. He's, and so he's, he's definitely not. No, he's, <laughs> he, he's trying. He's trying to do the reverse of the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. He's trying to say that the he's introduction to authenticate his. 
his, his version, version whilst at the same time so kind of writing on the technology of the film and the hybrid of CG and, and all the different techniques that the film under, undergoes not just through the colorization but um, the, the dropped frames and the, the, the additions I mean, it's about talking about those other techniques that he uses I think I mean yeah. there's like I kind of <laughs> I feel a bit like a fraud because I mean like some of the colorization I think is kind of amazing you know mm-hmm. it's like some of those when he has it in a full shot you know when he has the when he has the original framing of the image and he's colorized that or his team have colorized that it kind of looks amazing yeah the the point where it sort of descends I think is the point where he tries to add those other modern techniques particularly the close-up particularly those bits where there's described how there's shots with like loads of guys like waving at the camera you know the, the camera points at a, at a crowd of guys and they all wave and and laugh at the camera um and he splits those shots up so that in fact those individual faces sometimes there's like 20 or you know 15 or 20 faces in this on the screen at once and he zooms in on each individual one yeah and it sort of bubbles and pops and like it just i'm like it, it the 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 the, the definition of, of the image can't cope with that extent of blow up so it, they, they then it starts to look literally animated yeah. <laughs> you can see the grains of silver like moving around the face to create the movement and you can see how it's been smoothed out so there's like swirls of, of, of shading on, on these guys faces and they just look like they've been drawn quite badly yeah 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 <laughs> No, the, the, I mean, so the stuff, the writing around the film in relation to the technology is often, you know, it's part of the, on the one hand, it's about the filling in the gap. The technology is able to fill in the gaps. And this is kind of a, com- a common refrain within VFX discourse that, that somehow it is additive. Animation solves the crisis of there being no footage. The crisis of foot, there is nothing there. This is, again, Bella Honus Rowe writes about this in, in her book on animated documentary, that the, among the representational oh. strategies of animation in relation to documentary are sort of mimetic and non-mimetic substitution. It could have been there, and we're adding to it. It couldn't have been there, so animation solves the crisis of evidence, essentially. Yes. And then there's a third a third kind of category, which is about, which is more m- metaphoric. Right. So the other two, mimetic and non-mimetic substitution, are at least grounded in some kind of reality. The right. animation is solving a problem, sure. which is, which is again, kind of a common refrain in VFX and animated documentary discourse. And the problem that, is that your camera hasn't captured <clears throat> the thing that you are, want, that you need. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And there's there's no sinking of the Lusitania, for example, is the first... first of course. Is the first... What a lovely film that is. Yeah, but it's the... It's the on the one hand, it, it corrupts a bit of film history because you're like, well, animation was always for, for adult. Like, where, where did the It's for Children came along? Because yeah. you've got Sink and Lose But also that's sort of considered, Windsor McKay's, I think it's 1912, something like that, that's sort of considered, that, that's how the boat sank, yeah. even though it's, it's a kind of animated documentary. Anyway, so you have the animation that kind of fills in the gaps and solves, solves a problem. And then on the opposite side of that, you have the VFX... Jackson going, I don't really know how it happened. It just you know, all went into a computer and it spat out all this. So there are these conversations that he has where he's sort of, the, the mystery of it, you make new frames. The computer does it. The computer does it, right? What? And then Jackson says, I don't even know how it does it. Please don't ask me. Somehow it creates, it takes the frame before and the frame after and it creates a whole new frame that gives you a feeling of a smooth movement um, once you're back to, to 24 like, frames. So he's sort of that, like, I don't really know how it happens, but it's but I did it, but I don't know how it happens. But that sounds to me like it's both that kind of classic, let's dismiss the labour of VFX, oh, classic. Work, which is very kind of just, we've talked about that a few times. Yeah, but yeah. it also seems to be kind of tapping into, what, what he wants is this idea that the computer is the, the sort of 
the computer is the kind of Bazanian um, automated capturing of reality machine now, right? You know, that it's, it's it, we haven't done anything. There's been no human intervention. We've just pressed the fill in the frame button yeah. and it's filled in the frames that we're missing. So, so yeah. we've, not, we've not touched yeah, it. We've not touched yes. it. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, haven't yeah. made stuff up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, we pressed, been, it's happened remotely. We pressed the be more real button and now the images are more real. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes. Um, just thinking about that idea of animation like filling in stuff that you yeah, couldn't yes. do. One of the things that's, I know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to those 1920s films. No, no. But one of the, you mentioned the Lusitania, which I think is a brilliant example. And one of the things that is really striking in those 1920s battle reconstruction films um, is the way that they use animation. Right. Um, you know, that animation is also part of one of the techniques that they use. And they use it in order to explain, like, the battlefield. Strategic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they have maps and they have you know, animations. There's a, there's one of the Battle of Jutland which doesn't survive, but some of the illustrations from it survive, which is literally an animation of like the movement of the two fleets and how one fleet turns and oh, yeah. and how that creates the you know that how that creates the defeat. It's another one of Zeebrugge, same thing. Like the the plan at Z, at the raid of Zeebrugge was that they were going to explode some boats so that it blocked the canal. That is described through. Stop frame animation. Yeah. So, on that, in that sense, then, is Peter Jacks? Is this film just an intensification of those kinds of processes where animation has always been used in this? I mean, I'm thinking of the opening sequence of Dad's Army. And, you know, that's why I was when you described me, I was thinking of that. I was thinking about when Victor Perkins writes about worlds and and um, use of animation in fictional worlds. How many times do you see a flight? He says something like, you know, event doesn't have to be seen in a fictional world to know that it happens. Think of all the like, uh, Indiana Jones, and you just have the map and the dotted line. Yeah. And like, oh, they're traveling now. Yeah, yeah. So animation is always used in this sort of it way. So, so I just wondered whether or not, uh, on, in this sense, is is um, they shall not grow old just an intensification of those kinds of various processes of reconstruction plus archive. It's just doing it yes. in a slightly and it's also more doing way. It, it's also doing it with the archive. So it, I think he, you, I mean, I don't know whether you'd call this animation you guys would know, but um, there's a, like, there are various shots which are, you know, in the original format, they are a shot looking over the top with little puffs of smoke of the explosions of the front. But obviously they're a long way away because he's a long way away. And Jackson um, zooms in on those puffs of smoke so that they fill the screen and then he moves the camera across the frame that already exists yep. to create this idea of a sort of whip pan to the next explosion. So, like, is that animation? So, well, that's, well, that's actually it's, a technique that's used in anime. Ah. So in order to create the movement of characters, you just have a frame that's big enough and then you just move the cell to create the illusion of kind of flight. Yeah. So Astro Boy is a good example from the yeah. 1960s. So the, the, the illusion of movement is often not the character moving, but... It's the camera moving It's the camera the... moving and gliding across a cell to create the illusion of, of mm. some kind of directional movement with also a background. Maybe the character stays still, but the background... Is moved yeah, yeah. almost like your, your Scooby Doo's. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's sort of like that, but done in camera with the cell, and you have the sort of directional lines to create the sense of of a kind of a gust of wind, flight like they're, they're off and flying yeah. and stuff. So, so that's actually an interesting Thomas so you, Tom Lamar talks. Like, yeah, so you like could a technique. read him as doing. Yeah, that. you could read him as but doing those kinds of animated techniques. The difference is that these effects are things that are not meant to be kind of integrated back into the image quite so um, declaratively as as they shall not grow old. They shall not grow old wants you to kind oh, of see, yeah. see the image as not a set of different little processes going on, but as this kind of authentic. I'm, I'm 
this could be a very, very convoluted theoretical way of something saying Lawrence has already said very succinctly in his blog post. <laughs> but, but the original footage I can see from, from this kind of distancing, you know, I can't watch old movies. These are, is that sense that it, what they actually do is they evoke the distance of time. They evoke the yeah. distance of memory. They evoke yeah. the distance of mediation if you watch them in their kind of whatever the original format. format but what these things do is they claim a fantasy of it's all right you're you're back you're back there now you're you're you know you're not you're not watching this in 2022 um over 100 years since these things were documented we've it's it's like you were there like you know it's it's that stuff again but that like you i mean i think that's one of the things that really interests me about the whole discourse around this film is the idea that you know we had to colorize it because you know students you know young people today won't accept black and white hmm. the sense in which i mean on the one hand like lots of our students haven't seen black and white films they're not used to black and white mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean so that they won't accept it um and that like a lot of what he does is he 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 takes the film and he manipulates it in such a way that it looks generically like realist cinema today. So he, he wants the moving, he wants the steady cam, the, yeah. kind of, you know, the handheld camera feel, because that gives the authenticity of like realism in today's language. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, <laughs> well, handheld cam doesn't exist in 1916. Um, and the images themselves look very different from what we would understand as, you know, they are static and they are on a tripod. and But that's also their guarantee of authenticity. So these two different versions of authenticity are, are working against each other. But one of the things that is absolutely true is that if you show Battle of the Somme, the original version, to students and you explain to them how it was made and you explain to them, you know, you give them some framing narrative... They sit and they watch it and they come out and they say, I was really moved. You know, this is extraordinary footage. Mm. I couldn't believe that what I was looking at were people who were actually there going through that experience. There's a bit the sunken road sequence in the in the in the main film where they're like, you know, he's dug. They've done They've dug a tunnel into no man's land where there happens to be a road sunk down in a sort of it's a sunken road. Um, And they have they they know that they're about to go over the top. I mean, he doesn't film them going over the top because he has to leave before that happens. But they know that they're about to go to the top and they just look into the camera and like it's the most immediate experience seeing these guys who just like, you know, they look like they're experiencing the thing that they're experiencing. Mm. <laughs> so why didn't mm. they just re-release this for... They the, did. Uh, uh, <laughs> and no one went to see it. No, no, yeah. it was very successful. Okay. They did, a, they did a restoration of it a couple of years before the centenary. Um... Uh, and it was beautifully restored. It had a new score um, uh, uh, composed by Laura Rossi. Uh, it w- was released in a DCP print. It went round cinemas. I mean, obviously, it wasn't a Peter Jackson film, yes. so it went round art cinemas, and you know, uh, people who are interested in arts and history went to see it. But it wasn't a kind of blockbuster experience. But yes, they, that that beautiful version of the original 1916 film absolutely exists and that's one of the things i think is a bit dishonest about jackson's that he didn't admit yeah he the way that he talks about it the footage was abject he made it fabulous the footage was not abject that he that he encountered the footage had been restored already Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and looked beautiful yeah so that sense of also sorry just gonna Well, I've got my banter. finally now we've got the jam jar off glasses are down we're off um can we just talk about 
uh, projection speeds and frames per second because obviously he's obsessed with frames per second like lots of people today are like oh yes more frames per second is better and somehow like film of the past is not good enough because there aren't enough fucking frames per second yeah. Jesus Christ alive in 1916 cameras were hand cranked there was there is no standard frames per second number Somebody says, oh, yeah, so I think you'll find films in the silent period are projected at 16 frames per second. That is bullshit. <laughs> they were hand-cranked. The frames per second number changes all the time. And also, not only that, but the projection was hand-cranked too. So the projectionist basically was hand-cranking the, the film and was looking at the screen and went faster or slower depended on, depending on what they thought looked right. Right, I see, yeah. So, like, you know, film is inert. It's an object. Those, those frames are there, but, like, you can't give somebody archive footage that is in the wrong, on, in the wrong speed because film yeah. is a strip of... Sure. Pictures like it's only the wrong speed if you project it, if you run it through a machine at the wrong speed. And it and it sounds like it's very subjective what the wrong speed could Absolutely be. Absolutely subjective what the, what the wrong speed could be. And there are you know I've been in, I've had experiences where I've seen the I've seen a silent film like a twenty silent film, which has been. Um, you know, which I've looked on a steam back or which has been projected by a projectionist who's twiddling the knob to just like to what they think looks right. And then it's gone to an archive where they're like, oh, yes, it has to be slow, you know, because of this period. And the film looks is death. You know, it's just it's so slow and dull. Mm, interesting. Doesn't work at all. So but it is so it's totally subjective and it was subjective at the time. So this is the so the the imaginary is not in terms of the the, the imagined but there is this imagined space of the trenches. There is this imagined cultural social political space of, of the the war the first world war and then there's the imagined space of what oldness looks well, we've, like. we've all picked up our iphone and done the sepia mode with the grain yes all that, the, that bullshit that, this is what oldness looks and like and they speed it up because that, and the reason that, yeah. i mean the reason for that myth about old films being fast is because i mean perhaps you are even too young for this but like back when i was a child they showed old films on on you know kind of like nostalgia shows but they put the they put the silent film through a sound projector and sound is faster so most basically um, filmmakers would be like once you're over 16 15 16 frames per second then you then you lose the filter you lose the flicker yeah yeah so once you're up to a certain speed it doesn't flicker anymore it's a smooth movement but sound demanded 25 so silence is anything between you know, 14, 15 and 25, 24, sorry. But obviously by the 70s when they're making these shows on BBC Two, whatever, like they don't have, they only have uh, telecine machines that, that run at 24. Mm. Um, so they show them at sound speed. So they are faster, but there's nothing intrinsic in the film that yeah, is faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it just to do with how it's been transferred. It sounds like when when we talk about like film history or film history courses or being a film historian, there's actually two parallel, almost disciplines going on in that, right? Or like two ways of doing it, and, and they compete and they contrast, yeah. and students kind of can't quite get their head around both of them. Which is that 
it's the history of film, the mechanism, the device, the process, the culture, all that stuff. Uh, and there's sort of history through film, right? Yeah. The, um, the way film can yeah. access the grander historical narratives that we might choose for it to access. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like Jackson's not bad at the... Well, he's all right at the history through film. Yeah. But yeah. a terrible... Uh, historian of the mechanism of film, absolutely, um, yeah. and absolutely. that's that. Na- and both of those narratives are going on. It's telling one story yes. that's trying to use this film mm-hmm. to, in, and actually, in some ways, complicate the narrative as you kind of. She does manage out. to do. I mean, I think but it tells a very bad history of film whilst yeah. it's doing it, and it's a very yeah. kind of. Um, but it's a history in service of his project. Yes. Uh, yes, a very, a very Kansas to Oz like history of, uh, of, 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 um, of it. Yes, yes, the, yes. Uh, the bit, I mean, the, <laughs> I mean, the, the Wizard of Oz references never stop. No, no, not, no. I mean, I've got nothing left. Um, <laughs> um, I, I mean, beyond the, I mean, he, he, you know, he, he rejects himself as very reticent. I think to call this a work of animation because you, one opens a, and goes back to what you said about the kind of labour of VFX artist. Anyway, um, there's also the cultural. What happens if I call this animation? So, and he says very famously, you know, if we if, if we start doing too much, we get into the realm of CGI and animation, which which is something else, well, other I mean, entirely. So he's very reticent to see this at all as the, as a work as of CGI animation. Or animation. It's yeah, it's all it's all enhancement. It's all right. I'm just sharpening up what was there using. I, I'm using Adobe. I'm just sharpening up what was there. I think he, I think he, you know, he he passed that milestone some time ago. Because if he calls it animation, people will go, oh, like like Gollum, like when you did Gollum, like and he doesn't <laughs> want that. He can't have that. The bits that I found, I mean, the colorization, fine. The bits that I found more problematic, and maybe I don't, I doubt this is a, a feature of the original footage from Battle Song, but is where you have these the kind of slow motion. So when they, they, their voiceovers are talking about a reluctance to go over the top, you have this slow motion of a lot of them turning their heads to the camera. And I'm almost certain that there's repeated footage. So something will happen and it's repeated again yeah. almost instantly. Yeah. I found those bits a lot more offensive yeah. because that's the that's a real... We're now making this slow motion to try. Yeah, that that's where I actually saw most the most manipulation. The colorization I could sort of loosely get on board with and was sort of intri- in the same way I can I can get on board for about five minutes with the Disney live action remakes and go yeah that's kind of interesting. Oh, okay, fine. Like with this, I go yeah okay. So the colorization is interesting. And what else? And then I started to think about the mixed media, the use of illustration, and then these sorts of yeah, this this use of slow motion and repeated footage that is that felt a lot more calculated yeah, to me. And yeah. I'm assuming that that's nothing that's not in the original. Absolutely, that's yeah. him just in the same way he closes in on frames and yeah. moves the camera across frames. And can we talk very brief about sound as well? What's the? Are they just they just get some foley artists in? Do they take arc? Is there any? Where's the, is the legitimacy? Yeah, are we talk about the legitimacy of the sound. Can what? we talk about that in the same way? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously there's no sound yes. in the original footage. Um, I mean, I, th- I suppose it's relatively interesting, the idea that he gets lip readers in to sort of to, to say what they're saying. But, I mean, they don't say anything particularly unexpected. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but, yeah. But you I see, mean, like, bombs going off. Yeah, that's all. But, I mean, I suppose, there's a sense in which that's kind of okay, because, like, obviously... The films weren't shown in silence. The films were shown with a, a range of different soundtracks or whatever. Sounds and, like you said that a lot in silence cinema mean, classes. Holy crap. Yeah, but, yeah. I uh, say, that's and I mean, yeah. one of the interesting things that the that the original IWM restoration did was they reconstructed the original soundtrack. So there there was there wasn't an original soundtrack. All the sound was played live. All the music was played live. But in the trade magazine, the Bioscope, there is a suggested list of pieces to play at the different sections of the film and that has been reconstructed by uh, Toby Haggis and some of the curators uh, and 
Stephen Horne at the at the Imperial Museum on their restoration, and that is really surprising because, you know, the the the, the commission score is all like, oh, this is terrible, you know, bleak wartime, it's all awful, but because of the, the original sound suggestions are, you know, there's a bit in the in the in the in the Battle of Ankara and the advance of the tanks where the tanks come over the horizon and they play the entry of the gladiators, you know, the, the circus music. Right, okay. <laughs> the yeah, yeah, circus yeah. music. There's, uh, there's quite a lot of sort of... It's, it's really upbeat, the soundtrack, uh, the original soundtrack. Yeah. So but, there is a sense in which, you know, it's like... But, but I mean, okay, I'm, but, but... Sound is I, added always. If you were a sound, you know, a sound engineer, a sound, I would have thought that surely is... What they're doing is almost the same as what they're doing in the image, right? They're taking something that's destabilized and they're going, oh, you can hear the, like, as if you could ever hear those things, yeah. right? No, you, you know, could never um, hear those and it's part of this register of modernizing. Yes, yes, you know, it's totally, it's totally. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the project is all about modern, you know, the project is all about, you know, evidence of the past isn't good enough for us to be able to stand, understand the past. Like, we need to add to it. And I just don't think you do need to add to it. It doesn't sound very historical. It's not historical. Mm. Like, the students respond to the the film without any additions. They're quite happy to, like, watch the film and be like, this was amazing. If you frame it right. Yeah. Okay. I think that's true of silent cinema teaching always. It's like, I mean, it's like... You know, when you're teaching silent cinema, you've always got students who don't want to be there because the course is compulsory. Mm -hmm. And you've always got students <laughs> who are expecting it to be frigging awful and really boring and dull. Yeah. So it's really easy to make it fun because you just show films that aren't dull. Yes. And like cinema was the most popular medium of its period. Like the films yeah. aren't dull. It's almost like, unless like 30 you years to show worth of creative activity around the globe. We might have made a couple of good there movies. Might be, yeah. uh, there might be a few amusing films yeah. knocking around there. Like you just pick out those amusing films and the students are like, oh, I wasn't expecting it to be like this. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. their low expectations are so low that it's really easy to... Yeah. Well, mate, so, so maybe part of what the film is, I mean, is, is the film trying to do some of that rehabilitation work around... Could, is there anything positive in terms of like Jackson's at least saying we should treat like silent cinema has these things that we can look at and play with and examine and or are we are we just sort of saying that actually he's it's just too mired in truth and authenticity and the sort of sound effects that add on. I mean, I suppose one thing about uh, the film is that it has increased interest in the original footage. Good. So, okay. like, you know, I, I, I rarely have students now who've never heard of the idea that there were cameras in the First World War and that, 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 that okay. there were films made okay. in that period. And they're all quite primed to talk about... I mean, obviously, they're all quite primed to talk about the kind of shit I talk about because they've heard on the grapevine that I'm a bit rude about Peter Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> they're all, like, up for that idea. Yeah. We'll just set them this podcast as, re as <laughs> yeah, yeah, reading yeah, or listening yeah, yeah, and they'll yeah, hear, they'll yeah, hear yeah. that. The frame rant was the highlight for me. Um, um, but yeah, uh, well, I guess, and I guess to be charitable, an idea that artifacts in the past always should be and do and should be used by the present and speak to the present. And, you know, that that the other thing would be like, this footage is so sacrimony and so part of our national heritage that that if to, to even tinker with it would be to be a, a insult yeah, to the memory, yeah, yeah. which I guess there's a it destabilizes uh, that a little that bit. It does destabilize right. that a little bit. And it, I mean, I it think makes there is less precious. There I is guess. a sense in which, like, it's like if you see the footage, you'll realize that it's it is actually familiar because it's constantly used in TV yeah. documentaries and constantly used as like it's been used again and again and again. So it's so it's always been played with and messed around with. You know, famously the documentary, the sixties documentary, The Great War, 
you know, in order to make sure that everybody knew who was the enemy and everybody knew who were the who were the you know goodies and the baddies, they had the Germans always advancing from the left to the right of the screen and the Brits always advancing from the right to the left of the screen. So this flipped lots of images so that they could maintain that continuity, mm. so that that spatial idea. So like the footage has always been messed around with. A, a twice told tale, Chris, to reference uh, a footnote from a few weeks ago. Yes. Um, um, <laughs> We haven't. I think we've sort of addressed this, but just to kind of put a full stop on this question, you said that war is uh, the uh, images of the war are always a fantasy and always an animation. We've certainly talked a lot about why this is could be considered an animation. Why can all of them be considered? An animation? Well, because I mean, I suppose with the ex- <laughs> with the exception of the actual footage, right? You're always creating a world that isn't there, and usually you are helping. You, you are being helped in that by animation or CGI or sure. whatever the hell it is. And even back to those reconstruction films of the of the twenties that I was working on, it, you know, you use animation as part of the ways in which you explain the world. Yeah, yeah, okay. that's, right. yeah. That's de- I mean, that's certainly true of, of as I said, when I talk political animation and trying to explain to students that these are studios that have contracts with the government to produce certain kinds of movies and that certain kinds of characters. In the case of Snaffer, Warner Brothers is created that it's created to be shown to soldiers, and you know it has a different and, and the animation exists in these different sites. Yes, and, spaces and of course, some of the key propaganda films of the nineteen yeah. of the of the First World War period are animations. Those lightning, those lightning sketch stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, lots of those things are, are yeah. fundamental to the propaganda. So, ma- so this this is perhaps less of an unusual. This uh, they should not grow it is less of an unusual. I can't believe they used animate and actually. Yes, the, the, the whole debate—the whole debate that Jackson has or doesn't have about whether this is or isn't animation, or uh, whether or not we should even care that it uses animate—is actually something that's been going on yes. for a yes, long time. And, and, and actually, we can critique the film in other ways, like well, its use of slow, slow we, motion. We can, we can critique its rhetoric of how it uses yes. that, right? I think uh, Ursula. I think that's yeah. The, yeah, that's the thing that I've got a real beef with. If he just sort of said. I've used this footage for the Imperial War Museum and I've done this with it and isn't it great? And I, I would have been like, that's fine. Yes. Yeah. I know. used it as a playground to create a kind of CGI blockbuster out of it. But um, what, he, what he actually says is, this footage of the Imperial War Museum was so terrible and awful and of crap and it was all jerky and like speeded up and like, I have solved it, is yes. the way that he yeah, describes yeah. it. Which I've is preserved not, it for another generation. It's kind of just not an appropriate way of going about your business, I think. Okay. <laughs> well, on that note, um, that's all our time for today. Yes. Um, um, Lawrence, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking through, yeah, They Shall Not Grow Old, fantasy and animation, bit of both. Perfect, else. perfect fodder yeah, yeah. for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the podcast that Chris mentioned in the introduction, people can find, and do you want to... Oh, yes, so the... Say, you, plug it one more time. Yeah, yeah, so you mentioned you're involved with the Kino Quickest series of podcasts. I've seen this floating around. Give, um, give, give listeners who might be interested uh, a... a 20-second synopsis of what the hell it is, and um, I'm assuming it can be found in places Wherever where you podcasts listen to your podcasts. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So Kino yes. Quickies. So Kino Quickies, Quota Quickies, are a, a series of films uh, made in Britain in the early 30s purely as a result of film legislation, purely as a result of government legislation that said films had to be made. Um, so they're famously awful, but they're also... <laughs> 
hilarious. Um, and me and Dom DeLarge, who is my kind of partner in crime, he's the one who actually does all the work and creates the podcasts. Uh, we show these three, these films to an audience um, and then we have a discussion about them afterwards and Dom describes the films in the podcast and you get a sort of flavour of the discussion. Brilliant. So we'll put a link in the blurb, I think, episode blurb on, on where Absolutely. people can listen and, and maybe attend, hopefully, one of these screenings. Absolutely. Otherwise, you can find us, of course, at fancy-animation.org where you can access the archive of podcasts and blog posts. We're also available on where you get your podcasts yes. um, and where you get your social media will be there too they'll probably have changed all their names the as to names what they used they'll to be, be owned called. by new people um, but yeah, you can we'll find us but we'll be, we'll, we'll be there clinging on um, uh, at fan and in research F-A-N for all the noise F-A-N A-N-I-M research you can also use that handle F-A-N A-N-I-M research at gmail.com to email your suggestions for future footnote episodes we'd be delighted to receive some more um, otherwise it's been us for another episode we'll see you next time bye Thank you.